Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureViz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 159, and today's guest is Kyle York, co-founder, CEO, and managing partner at York IE. Kyle and I are from the same hometown, that being Manchester, New Hampshire. Growing up, I used to purchase my gear from his family's sporting goods store called Indian Head Athletics, so it is definitely a small world. After graduating from Bentley, Kyle worked in the tech industry and went on to be part of the core leadership team that built Dyne, one of the most successful companies to come out of New Hampshire. Not only did they scale revenue to $100 million in annual recurring revenue, but Dyne also became one of the most important tech companies in the world as thousands of the top websites counted on the company for internet performance and security. Dyne was acquired by Oracle in 2016. After investing in over 70 startups over the past decade and building companies as an operator, Kyle is leveraging this experience to help other entrepreneurs succeed through his firm called York IE, and the IE stands for Investment Enterprise. This is a new value-add investment firm and operating company with a commitment to reshape the way startups are built, scaled, and monetized. In addition to York IE, Kyle is actively involved with several other companies as either an investor, operator, or board member. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like Kyle's background and some reminiscing about Manchester, all the details in terms of how he led corporate strategy, growth, and go-to-market at Dyne, how a massive DDoS attack at Dyne turned into a positive, Kyle's experience as an angel investor, the details on York IE and how they differentiate from other investors, advice for founders on building out an initial sales strategy, and so much more. Okay, quick side note, whenever someone asks me who are the fastest growing tech companies in Boston or New York City, I simply direct them to our biz pages. From there, you can do a virtual tour of each tech scene and explore over 280 companies. Each biz page tells you everything you need to know about a company from a high level, like all the details on their product, culture, job openings, leadership team, and more. Go to venturefizz.com backslash biz pages to start exploring. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Kyle. Kyle, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, Kyle, I'm excited because um, you know you were obviously involved with the uh, great success story, Manchester Dine, and I had Jeremy and Gray on the podcast recently where they shared the whole story, but we're going to get your perspective uh, as far as what you were building to make that company a success. Uh, but you're doing a lot of other interesting things these days since Dine, so we're going to get into the, the whole weeds of that, which is exciting. But, um, you know... Uh, People who listen to this podcast, they might know this by now because I talk about it when I have the opportunity to. It's a great topic. It's called Manchester, New Hampshire, which is uh, I grew up in Hooksit. So I went to high school in Manchester. So, um, you know, your family is where I used to get my sporting goods to go, you know, get ready for Pop Warner or high school football. So uh, I want to thank you for Indian Head Athletics. (laughs) Well, thank you for being a loyal uh, customer all those years. Really appreciate that. Yeah, it was an amazing store. It was an amazing store. So it was always like where you go to get your cleats and all your other gear so you get uh, ready for the upcoming season. But um, so, so, you know, your family obviously had a big part of, you know, Manchester and kind of the foundation of athletics. But um, so, so talk about, you know, your experience in Manchester. Like where did you grow up? Like what yeah. town, city did you grow up in? Where did you go to high school? That whole stuff. Yeah. So the backstory actually is my parents. Uh, my mom went to Central. Okay. Uh, in Manchester. She grew up in the North End and my dad grew up in the South End and he went to Manchester Memorial. Uh, and Don and Gail met at the Puritan Backroom restaurant. Oh, okay. For their chicken tenders and ice cream. Amazing. Uh, and Amazing. Um, my dad asked my mom for a, if she wanted a lick of his ice cream cone because he couldn't afford to, to buy her own. <laughs> she said no, but I, I never asked did she say yes. I mean, but they ended up raising a wonderful family. Uh, and they actually moved into Bedford, which is a suburb of Manchester. Um, and that's where the five York brothers, I'm, I'm the middle of five sons uh, with a 17 year age gap, same parents, uh, grew up. And the oldest four of us uh, grew up playing sports. Uh, this was before Bedford was big enough to have its own high school, before mm-hmm. it had its own uh, Pop Warner teams for football. So I actually grew up playing Manchester West Raiders. Manchester Bears football, and then mm-hmm. I went to Manchester West, and my the four oldest brothers uh, went to Manchester West High School. We're all, uh, you know, we are West High uh, Blue Knights. Blue Knights, the yeah. Youngest York brother, Dylan, who actually works for our shoe business, we'll get into later. Uh, Dylan actually was the only one who went to the New Bedford High School, 
and, and he ran track and played football there. And, and so we all grew up in and around athletics. Um, the, 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 the actual great part, Indian Head Athletics, you mentioned, the, was the name of the sports store. Uh, we'll get a lot into that, but that was actually originally Indian Head Shoe Manufacturing Company. So my mother's father, Henry Spaulding, was the president of Indian Head Shoe Factory, which was actually all, all the shoes were manufactured in this building I'm sitting in, the R.G. Sullivan Cigar Building at 175 Canal Street. And my brothers and I actually bought back in 2014. And uh, they manufactured shoes in this building for decades. Uh, the company was founded in 1946. It was in operation to 1980-ish. Um, so, so there's a lot of family story. That was Gen One of the shoe, you know, business. And then my dad ended up taking, you know, he he married in, and he had the outlet store, and he turned it into sort of general purpose uh, sports and equipment. You know, it's where we got all of our uniforms, leagues, and that's where we all cut our teeth, honestly, learning business, working retail. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's uh, it's a huge part of our family history, um, the heritage, the legacy, the commitment to the community, the city, the state, uh, the greater Boston kind of region, and it's mm -hmm. a, it's a big point of pride for us. Yeah, it's so cool to hear that background story and all how all that came together. Now, and then you went on to you went to school at Bentley and you played football at, there too, right? Yeah, I did. Um, you know, I I always say, uh, you know, we all we all peak at some point in our athletic life. I, you know. I, I went to Bentley and, you know, Bentley was, they still are rumored to go up a level to the FCS, the one double a, and it was a division two mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to do business though, growing up in the family business. The, the beauty of what my parents did is everyone knew of Indian head athletics. My parents were really enterprising. You know, it was actually multiple businesses in one. They, they had uh, the building. They also owned there was screen printed specialties which was actually all the uniforms and screen printing embroidery all the hats we wore for Lily. it was actually a separate business mm -hmm. they had the retail business they had a team business for indian head athletics they also had a separate business that was the parking lot business because the arena that was built in the early 2000s was put across the street mm -hmm. so there was four or five different businesses sort of intertangled into one that was this real enterprising thing and that's what i grew up with this really smart savvy way to look at business expenses tax uh, kind of ownership and, and a real captive, obviously local business is, is parlayed honestly very nicely into my career. But when I went to Bentley, I knew I wanted to be in business. I, I knew I was extroverted. I was at West High School. I was student council president and captain of the football <laughs> team. So I was, I, I got most involved my uh, senior year as my, as my superlative where my little brother Tyler got best looking. So I think he, and my dad was best looking at Memorial too. So uh, I think they, I think my mom got best hair at Central. Um, but I got most involved, which is sort of the nerdiest of all superlatives. Um, and so when I went to Bentley, I, I knew I wanted to be in business. I knew I would end up in sort of marketing or sales or one of those arenas just based on, I was so bad at math and uh, it wasn't, it wasn't great at art and design. So I just knew what I wanted to do. And, and Bentley also had a really forward leaning um, curriculum around technology and trading. So we learned about the stock market. They had a trading floor. It was the backup trading floor to, to New York on Wall Street if things happened down at the NASDAQ or not. Uh, NAS, the stock exchange. People would actually go up to Bentley and trade. Um, they gave every student a laptop. It was just a really cool place. And I uh, learned a lot, very case study driven. So it's sort of like an a a MBA for undergrad. Like I never thought I needed an MBA after going to Bentley for undergrad. I actually felt like I learned too much, uh, you know, so I just took that off to my, my first company. So, but yeah, phenomenal experience down in Waltham. So, so how'd you get into the, the tech industry coming out of school? I thought for sure I was going to go into advertising because my oldest brother, Travis, who runs GYK Antler up here, and he recently launched a York Creative Collective, which is a collection of, of brands backing creative entrepreneurs. Uh, we're investors and advisors in that business, but he, he went to business uh, uh, to uh, Boston University and he minored in business, but he majored in communications and he was our oldest brother. So he was five years older and then Evan was between us. He was a more technical computer engineer. Uh, they were both actually in advertising. So in worked for large agency conglomerates, uh, Euro, RSCG, Arnold, those types of companies. And that's what I thought I was going to do. And I remember my summer after uh, my freshman year, I, made, I, I interned at a company called um, New England Interviewing, which is a market research company. And I really loved the data 
behind marketing. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And most of those market research companies were just then starting to use online survey tools and technology. Again, this is really early 2000s. And I knew I really loved technology. But it wasn't until the second summer my, after my sophomore year at Bentley where I was looking for internships in Boston and none of them would pay me. <laughs> and if they did, it was like minimum wage back then was like five bucks an hour. And I was like, how am I going to sublet an apartment and go out for beers and go to, go to the Sox games? It's just not going to happen. And that was all kind of in that agency creative realm because, again, that's what I thought I'd do. And I started to look at companies up in New Hampshire and I said, well, what if I just look at technology and software businesses as a marketing intern and see what I found. And that's actually how I found Whipple Hill, um, which was my first startup. I worked for a founder CEO named Travis Warren. Um, and he, he was an interesting character. He had actually worked in, it was called Vertical SaaS. Or back then it was his vertical software. Mm -hmm. uh, the software as a service model was just getting going. Uh, but he had worked in banking because that's what his dad had been in, banking software to help run your bank. And he had done it for private schools, so K-12 prep schools. So if you went to a private school in North America, uh, you most likely were leveraging some level of Whipple Hills technology. It was everything from admissions all the way through grading, attendance, sports programs, communication, the website, all the way to online giving, class notes, all those things. And it was just a great place to learn. I went from intern and actually spent, actually spent six years all in at Whipple Hill, they moved me to California. I ran West Coast Sales and Marketing. But like I never told anyone, but I was only like 23, 24 years old when I was out there running West Coast Sales and Marketing. You know, there's crazy a time experience. in your life where you lie and say you're older or exaggerate. And then there's yeah. a time in your life where you're like trying to tell people you're younger than you are. So it's uh, <laughs> it was a great, a great experience and it really set me up. And that's honestly how I ended up in not just tech, but B2B software and you know, never looked back. Yeah, it's such a good foundation experience that you got exposed to do so many different things while at Whipple Hill. So, so then how'd you end up at Dine from there? Well, it was pretty cool. I mean, the best, one of my favorite things about Whipple Hill and where it really grounded me is obviously I grew up in a small business, right? Mm -hmm. And right around this time, my brother Travis had, had moved home and, and started working at, which is now his marketing agency. He had, he had transitioned out the old owners over the last decade plus. Um, but what I really loved is this kind of concept of like having like a local heart, building something in your community, but having a global audience and a global customer base and global ambition. And what was really cool about Whipple Hill is, although it was headquartered in New Hampshire and it was based here, they moved me to California and I was able to work in the sort of booming tech scene in, in the West Coast. And what brought me back to Dine actually was um, Jeremy Hitchcock and Tom Daly, two of the co-founders of Dine actually um when they wanted to go b2b it was a consumer business as you know in the early years and for your listeners who listened uh it started as a direct-to-consumer e-com business for folks to be able to name their home network or their home router uh and log back in you got to remember this is before computers and, and mobile phones and you know did all you know you had the internet in your pocket and right certainly before iot right so they wanted to basically bring that same technology that named IP addresses to what at the time was managed hosting, outsource hosting, and that was moving to cloud computing. And these web pages were getting more and more complex. And I was actually working for Whipple Hill, but they went to GYK, my brother's marketing agency, which has done a lot in tech and B2B. He's done a lot in tech and B2B in his career. And they wanted a marketing plan to go business to business. And one of the rules that my brother's agencies always had long before he was even here was never, you know, don't take on work if there's no head of marketing or go to market on the other end, because you'll do all this work and then there'll be no one to interface with to implement it. Yeah. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened with Don. Jeremy uh, and the guys had no clue what to, to do uh, with the actual strategy. It was a sound strategy, but it needed, obviously, there's no strategy without iteration and evolution. Uh, and that's when Jeremy had called my brother and asked if he knew anyone. And, you know, I just so happened timing wise, my wife, Katie and I, who met at Bentley, by the way, in marketing management class, she's from Winchester, Mass. Um, we were engaged in planning a wedding back in Boston. We got married at the long, or in, in, we got married at the church, uh, uh, St. Eulalia's in Winchester, but our reception was at um, the Longwood Towers uh, in Brookline. Mm -hmm. And our best after party ever, ever at the Hotel Commonwealth, uh, by the way, um, <laughs> but, but a wonderful experience. But we were planning it from the West Coast and it was frustrating. And I kind of felt like I hit a ceiling at Whipple Hill. So the timing was perfect. Um, and that's how I, it happened. I got I was at Phil's Barbecue 
in San Diego, the greatest barbecue place out there. And my phone rang and it was a number from New Hampshire. It was Jeremy Hitchcock. And he said, we're looking to kind of, at the time for them, it was almost like a co-founder, like, you know, they added Gray later on. It was more legal. He was hired as the general counsel, more legal business operations. And I was kind of like a guy, the guy that they missed in the go-to-market sales and marketing perspective. You know, just enough experience, not too much, right around the same age from New Hampshire, cared about the community, wanted to build it here, uh, moved home, and, you know, the rest is uh, is history. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a great, great exit with the acquisition by Oracle. But what was this? So it was just going to market with this B2B strategy. So, so, so like when you came in, like what, what did you have to do to kind of get things going? Well, you know, it had a good base, right? The beauty of Dine is um, it had never raised a dollar of outside funding. So there was two things about that. When you're funded by customers, you obviously have a really tight feedback loop on what to build for them and what you can add value for. More importantly though, I think when you don't have outside capital, you have no pressure. So the timelines for your ability to, implement new ideas and new strategies are just a little bit more flexible, mm-hmm. right? So they had actually launched uh, technically the B2B version at the time it was called Dynect enterprise class technology <laughs> um, and, you know, or Dyne connect. It was the general idea of it, but they didn't have any real outside customers. So it was sort of different than the, if you build it, they will come in consumer. You know, they had launched as a community project in 98, basically had almost a decade to build up to two, three million in revenue on the consumer side. So they had a lot of time in their hands and that consumer side was able to fund this B2B product, but they definitely didn't have the funding and or experience to go build a B2B go to market. So we had to basically translate this user base. I think at the time there was something like 10 million users had used this consumer technology over the years. Mm. So really a lot of the early marketing strategy was we had to redo the brand. You know, the websites were all decoupled. You had the consumer site, you had the sort of corporate site, and then you had the B2B product site. We brought everything together. That's when we kind of pushed off and became Dime. Uh, we, we spent $15,000 to buy a three-letter domain name, Dime.com. And we, and we just repositioned the company to what I call omni-channel, we made it more of a single funnel experience where you're driving as much awareness, visibility, top of funnel as possible. And you're giving customers a choice on how they want to engage with you. Do they want to put a credit card in? And it's very common nowadays with, with the, the kind of land and expand sort of inbound marketing that's happened over the years, but it wasn't called anything back then. I mean, SaaS was just now becoming SaaS, right? So it was all about this omni-channel where it was customer capture, customer choice, and we were getting the revenue. So they'd either fill out a lead form or fill out a conversion. So it's very much like, how do we take advantage of the high traffic of this user base? And we really pick some core verticals out of the gate and said, these are our focus areas. And everything we did from digital marketing to events, to content marketing, to outbound SDR work was all at media, software. Back then we called it Web 2.0. Mm -hmm. e-commerce these were our core verticals and we really got lucky in a couple of instances where we had customers who went to the website and were spending twenty dollars a year but it was like oh that's twitter or oh my gosh i can't believe beanie babies is on here or like you started to go through it and you said there's a 37 signals which is base camp was a client Mm -hmm. Um, and they didn't know better they just bought the better than free the domain name system DNS service for $20 a year. Mm-hmm. And we were kind of fishing in our own stock pond to build that, those case studies and those anchor customers and those references and then push our brand and elevate it forward. And honestly, I think it was this obsessive rinse and repeat of that. Like we will work with anyone with a website because that's what our technology did, but where there's going to be the best ROI and the most solidified and repeatable value prop is going to be in the verticals that without their website, they don't have a business. And, you know, it was rinse and repeat on the backs of those anchor customers for basically a decade before Oracle <laughs> came calling. Yeah. I mean, I remember I came into your offices, which by the way, was like the most unique offices I had ever seen. It was, so I, I'm a little partial to that whole mill yard area. Cause my dad had his own leather coat business there for several years. And that's where I learned business was amazing. A leather coat factory, <laughs> like work ethic. But uh, to see what you guys did with that office space was amazing. And when I was there, it was the first time I got to write a segue, which was fun. Oh, I love that. And then I saw like all these like 
the who's who of the internet logos across the wall. Where I'm like, those are your customers. Like you say, like Twitter and like Spotify. Yeah. I forget. It was like, like Spotify, a- New York times, yeah. Airbnb, you go on and on. I was just like, these are your customers. And like, again, it was like, uh, I don't think people understood how much of the internet was being run through this company in Manchester, New Hampshire until October 21st of 2016. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, awesome. <laughs> quite a day. Um, yeah, the, the reality of what we did, you know, we, and we tried to do a lot of like cheeky campaigns around this. Like you might've remembered the DNS is sexy campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a t-shirt campaign. I think we gave away like 10, 15,000 t-shirts ironically produced and printed at my dad's, uh, you know, screen printing business. Um, but you know, for, for years, it was all about trying to, um, kind of a, associate with those customers, right? Like when you're in cloud computing and infrastructure, you know, and you're not AWS or Amazon, it's like, how do you build awareness and visibility that you exist and that you're providing services and and value to these types of customers, right? So a lot of what we did, we created customer advisory boards. We, we focused really, really hard at joint speaking gigs or customers at major industry events, focused very hard on earned media, but also we just, we crush content marketing. I mean, we had such an amazing Alexa rank for a company. Most people in the world had no idea what we did. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was a real aggressive focus of, of, we can now call it, we coined it in my new firm. I'll talk about that later, but we, we actually coined it drumbeat marketing. It's about how do you create and craft your messaging hierarchy, turn the messaging hierarchy into, you know, value prop, repeatable use cases, but and then tell that story every day throughout, any medium possible. And what you see a lot is you hear a lot about content marketing, which is predominantly on your own channels, but how do you get your story, not just on your own channels, but earned in paid ways in a super integrated way, all day, every day, thus the drumbeat, the steady mm-hmm. drumbeat. And this is how we build Dine. And I think there's a lot of like obsessive compulsive disorder when it comes to building a company like Dine that wasn't straight up like enterprise, um, dollar values or average ARR per customer. I mean, we built the company on those $30 a year customers becoming $200 a month customers, becoming 10 grand a month customers, becoming million dollar a year. And the story I always love to tell on that is um, Oracle, who ended up buying us, their first contract with Dime was $600 a month. Wow. I remember why are we even negotiating this? You know, Gray and I would battle. Why are we negotiating this stupid contract with (laughs) Oracle terms? We have no power, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, we are a land and expand model. If we can take the $600 and build a strategic relationship out of it, which right now is a very transactional one, uh, we'll be in great shape. And by the time they acquired us, they were our third largest commercial customer behind Amazon and Twitter, spending about 950 grand a year on our services. Mm-hmm. And they paid the multiple on their own damn revenue to us, right? So it, it was, I think, in the end, ended up being the most monetized deal we ever did. Uh, but, you know, so I think there's a there's a, a lot of this sort of um, how do we become a household name and build awareness? That's why we focus so hard on the New Hampshire and you know, regional greater Boston tech ecosystem. That was for hiring. That was for brand cultivation. That was for awareness. It was for demand gen. And then kind of scaled that to the internet community because otherwise no one would have had a clue who we were until the events you mentioned on October 21st. Um, a, a little known fact um, October 21st, Jeremy had left the business. He was on the board still, so he's involved, but he had left the business earlier that year. And that day I was kind of like the proxy, you know, in charge. I mean, we had an interim CEO. We, we were kind of figuring out what our path was, but we were deep in an M&A uh, strategic process. Uh, I was leading that with my our colleague, Joe Raska, who's now my co-founder of my new business. And Joe and I were talking to about a dozen suitors, I would say six very seriously. Uh, and we were on October 20th, um, we actually had a board meeting where we all raised a glass of, of scotch. I think I was having an Oban. Uh, and we cheers and we signed the letter of intent to be acquired by Oracle, mm-hmm. and sent it over into the email, into their email, and awaited their counter signature. I drove into the office at 7.30 a.m. My phone's ringing off the hook from Dublin, Ireland. It's Amazon, our largest customer in the world, saying your network's performing like crap in the East Coast of the U.S. What's going on? And it turns out, you know, it's the largest, most 
sophisticated uh, DDoS, which is a distributed denial of service attack, pointed at our network. Uh, it was the Mirai botnet had overtaken and seized you know, millions of Internet of Things devices and pointed them all at our network at once to flood, flood the front door. Mm -hmm. And it was causing degraded service globally, meaning very slow traffic to all of our customers. Mm -hmm. And on the East Coast of the U.S., some folks weren't even getting any, any resolution of those web pages. And, and mind you, I had stayed up late. I think we signed that thing at 1145. Um, <laughs> it was very nerve wracking anyway. We think we're being like, this is due diligence from Oracle or something. We're like, this is the most twisted, sinister due diligence I've ever heard of in my life. Um, and it turns out, I mean, this was, uh, this ended up being law enforcement. I mean, heck, I was quoted in the USA Today with Obama the next day, you know, it was, it was unbelievable. And I, I think what ended up potentially being like the worst day in the company's history ended up actually being the best based yeah. on how our technical teams and the internet community rallied, the law enforcement community came together to help and also how we responded so proactively with customers. Right. I hosted like three separate um, like press conferences with the media so that there was no uh, ambiguity or uh, rumor mills getting going on what was going on. We were very open and transparent, which was always a part of our DNA. Mm -hmm. But when you know that the ultimate exit, strategic exit is, is pending and in the balance, um, you see the true colors of the entire organization come out. And I don't think without that, I think we would have been proactive, but I don't know if we would have been that assertive mm -hmm. and that confident and strong. And I really believe that um, that solidified Oracle's process. We ended up, uh, they ended up countersigning right around lunch that day. Uh, and, and they knew what was going on. We were giving them updates the entire time. And, and they actually quoted and said, Saffir Katz, the CEO at the time said two things. She said, well, at least the world will know we're very serious about cloud computing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, the second thing she said was, and we know Dyn's incredibly important to the internet. And I thought those two things ended up being actually validation for her, who was, you know, kind of a skeptic of this, you know, internet protocol company, you know, being acquired for big multiples. Um, I think it really converted her and we ended up earning a lot more respect post deal, but you know, it was a phenomenal, phenomenal showing. We, we signed the deal on November 21st, just 30 days later, they moved incredibly quick. Um, and you know, it was, it was a great, great outcome for, for everyone involved and a great career opportunity for folks too. Such a, such a cool story. So, so what, how, how did you get into investing? Yeah. So for me, actually, it's funny. Um, I was always kind of like dabbling in entrepreneurial projects, right? No, no matter what I was doing through high school, college, you know, I was always enamored by kind of startups and, you know, seeing my folks, Don and Gail, you know, working for themselves all those years and kind of controlling their own destiny in this captive, you know, closely held business empire they created. I always wanted that for myself, right? So when I came, when I went to Whipple Hill and I went to Dine, they both afforded that for me, right? They were small enough, you know, both CEOs, Travis and Jeremy, um, really empowered me to be me and, and evolve my career and, and add my flair to the roles and functions I took. But at the end of the day, they kind of weren't mine. And, you know, you never really know, right? You're, you, you join a company when you're young and you, you know, you fall on a career track and you think you're good and you think the company you're choosing is going to be a great one, but you know, you got to go out there and earn it every day. So part of it actually was, I, I started to get asked in the early days of Dyn to advise customers on, Hey, how the heck are you monetizing Dyn? Like, I can't believe you're growing this much and you have these customers. How are you doing it? I love your brand. And it started to become early on just advisory. Like, you know, we'll give you some stock options, you know, answer your phone when we call or let's do a monthly call. And Jeremy and, and the rest of the guys were doing similar things and were very supportive of sort of this rising tides, lifts all ships approach to not just local community, but the internet community holistically. And that led to, okay, well, maybe I can start to you know, write small checks. And, you know, if I start writing small checks and I start getting advisory equity and different, you know, engagements, that could be really rewarding financially over time. And so kind of leveraging the expertise I was gleaning and then focusing that on a, a small captive portfolio of engagements. And you do that long enough, right? Believe it or not, you start earning more and more and more. You know, I started to go back to market rates in my actual career. So I'd have more capital annually that I could start to put to work. So what started as, oh, I can do 25K in this first year, went to 50, went to 100, went to 150K. And when you start to get, and this is all, by the way, without ever selling a share of Dine, it was just out of my cash flow mm -hmm. and me doing sort of 
financial portfolio allocation based on risk and my age and my access. Um, and so by the time we sold Dine and by the time I left Oracle, I had actually angel invested in 60 companies. Wow, 60 companies. And that's 60 in tech. I mean, not to mention we've launched a restaurant and we own commercial real estate projects and we've got, you know, other kind of action, you know, oriented businesses that we're involved in that are more local or community based. So 60 investments and of the 60, uh, it was interesting to look at it because I mean, I was predominantly recurring revenue B2B software or closely held sort of marketing creative brands that were tied to my brother's efforts. And, you know, it was, it was really focused and we had 15 exits in that 60 wow. uh, one, and an additional, the 16th was an IPO fastly, which was a content delivery network that was a client of dine and a bunch of former dine guys went to, and then only four deaths, which I think was the probably mo- most impressive of it all, right? Of 60 that only four died because you hear so many metrics of like nine of 10 startups fail and go out of business. And that might be true in aggregate, but I'm not so sure it's true in B2B software Mm -hmm. and certainly not so true in B2B infrastructure software, security software or DevOps software where I have a ton of expertise. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was, it was really kind of a lot of these things are easy in hindsight, but like it's sort of, I've always been sort of this like really uh, obsessive methodical, like when you get into something, do it, do it consistently and do it forever and mm-hmm. play a really long game view on what you're doing. And that's how I treated angel investment and more of my start, startup portfolio work. Uh, I didn't treat it like side hobby. I treat it like side company. And, you know, when you create a groundswell like that, you know, eventually it could become a full-time thing. Well, that's a, that's good advice there. Kind of stay in your lane, like go deep, super deep, long game on what you know versus trying to be a little jack of all trades of all. No, totally. And I actually learned that. Um, and I think helped Dine learn that a lot in the early years. I remember when I interviewed Tom Daly, the co-founder and CTO, uh, who's one of those guys who had great success at Fastly, actually. He handed me the DNS and Bind book, which is like an O'Reilly book that's like 500 pages. And it's like, it's the most boring thing you could ever read if you're not into that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Bind is a software that much of the DNS protocol lives on. It's an open source software. And Tom wanted me to read it to be a good sales and marketing guy for Dine. And I'm like, whoa, 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 what are you going to do if I read that book? You know? And it was more like, hey, I'll be the worst sales and marketing guy on the planet if I get into the minutia of DNS and Bind and RFCs and all these crazy things that no one actually cares about from a customer and a use case and a value prop perspective. Also, Jeremy wanted me to go take accounting classes so that I could help with financial planning and understand tax and audit better as a head of sales and marketing. And I thought to myself, then what the heck will Gray do? Um, or Linda, who was our controller at the time, Linda Mahoney. So, so my thing was always strengths. And that led to Gray and Jeremy implementing this thing, StrengthsFinder, uh, which many know of now, StrengthsFinder 2.0, where everybody ended up taking the test and on their name placard and in their email signatures. You know, I was a, a communicator, a maximizer, a competitor. It's like obvious stuff, but it kept people sort of in there, not just their functional lanes, but their, their sort of personality lanes. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think if you carry that through to your career, uh, you're going to be a heck of a lot more successful than trying to be something you're not or or engage in markets or, or technologies or, you know, industries that you're, that you're not accustomed to. Well, let's talk about what you're up to now with York IE. So York investment enterprise is what the IE stands for, right? So what's that all about? Yeah. So I mentioned a little bit of this earlier, it'll all kind of connect. Um, when I started to like really um, make a name for myself when we built Dine and it started to get, you know, bigger and bigger and the customers were bigger and our profile was big, I started to do tons of speaking gigs. And for some reason, one of the tracks I got into is family business speaking gigs because I would always talk in our blogs or on stages about family business values and work ethic and work for a profit. I mean, Dine didn't fundraise till 2012 and 30 million ARR and 95% of the round was secondary for founders. So it wasn't like we, we were not fundraising the company on company profits. We had a profit sharing plan. Yeah. So, so all those values fundamentally were what I believed in and what Jeremy believed in. And it sort of led to me getting on the speaking circuit for family business. And what I learned was that a bunch of schools actually had family business majors, including Stetson University down in uh, Florida. Mm-hmm. And I went to speak down at the university and at the family business magazine transitions conference. And they actually called it the family business enterprise. And what they said was most family, multi-generational family businesses over decades aren't 
what they were founded behind. They're, they end up being family offices or adjacent businesses or commercial property businesses or investment companies. And I thought back to my family upbringing and how I mentioned, although it was a local New Hampshire-based sports retailer, it actually was multiple businesses and they all played off each other. And it was actually my parents' family business enterprise. And when I took stock and did an audit of sort of all the things that we were involved in as, as brothers and, and our, with our wives and all the investments we were making, I thought, York IE, could it be a modern investment company, a different investment company, not a classic venture capitalist with traditional funds, traditional fees, traditional types of talent? Mm-hmm. Could we build our own investment enterprise anchored in family business and family business values? And that's where the IE came from. Also, just as a side note, it's a .ie domain name, which is Ireland. Uh, that's the TLD top level domain name of Ireland. Mm-hmm. They were a client of Dine. We ran .ie. And that's also where Amazon's technology teams are based in Dublin, which mm-hmm. is our largest and the most transformative, maybe, maybe arguing Oracle, Twitter, and Amazon, but it was our most transformative win for Don. It was the largest individualized contract we ever won. So there's a bunch of tie-ins that made sort of Ireland uh, kind of a special place for us. So we decided to run with it and keep it. That's very cool. Now, so, so what are the details on the firm? Like, so what, what's your, cause you, you guys are kind of taking a different approach as it relates to how you're building companies or helping build companies. Yeah, totally. So the way we look at it is, is, you know, there, there has been never more money available for early stage companies. Mm-hmm. And as these rounds, these early stage rounds get bigger and bigger and bigger, what's called a pre-seed round or a seed round or an A round, it's hard to decipher anymore because the rounds are so darn large. The funds that write checks into those rounds are also so big. And they're all still following the same traditional means of let's raise a fund, let's deploy it, deploy it over five or seven years, let's wait to break even on the fund, and then let's start paying out proceeds minus carried interest. Mm-hmm. And they're charging a, a management fee the entire time, a 2 to 3% annualized management fee on the fund they raised. So in essence, investors in the historical model, I think, are pretty rich, you know, making two to 400K a year, running a fund. And they could be the worst investors in the planet. And so when I was going to build this company, I started to think to myself, why am I being forced to make a binary choice on whether I'm a VC or I'm a SaaS operator? Is there a way that I could build a new modern VC? So think of it like a next-gen venture capitalist uh, with new kind of vehicles to invest out of, modern vehicles to invest out of, but powered by data, analytics, research, and a product platform, a SaaS platform. Is it possible? Can I not raise a traditional fund? Can I operate with a syndicate model only? So we basically take on investment partners who invest alongside of us in every deal that we do. We don't charge a management fee and we only charge on the gain on the other end. Can we, by not doing that, by not taking a management fee, we view it that we actually work with and for the entrepreneur, not for the limited partner or the investor behind us because we're not taking a day-to-day check from them. And then it enables us the flexibility to consult for startups, to do advising for startups, to build products and tools and do research and work in portfolio with our startups. So we believe if with that slant, as well as the expertise we have both in operating as well as throughout the historical portfolio and go to market and sales and marketing and growth and B2B SaaS, that we can be super differentiated compared to other seed stage venture funds. There's also a sea of noise out there. If we were a little bit hybrid between everything, like there's, there's thousands of seed stage funds. There's, you know, I'd say hundreds of boutique investment banks. There's hundreds of private equity, even early stage private equity funds. There's consultancies, there's media companies, there's content companies. If we can merge and be a little bit of all those things in one, that's actually our uniqueness and actually our differentiation. So instead of trying to be one thing, enter one market, you know, let's kind of mash those things together again, focusing on our strengths and go to market and scale and try to be a little bit more value add for, for the early stage ecosystem. I also think not a lot of the seed stage players are leading rounds, which we, we will lead rounds. Um, and I think that's a, everyone's always waiting for someone to lead. And then a lot of seed stage guys will follow on like angel investors would. And I think there's, there's a lot to be said for being first money in as well as taking that risk and then jumping shotgun and helping, helping these entrepreneurs kind of grow as humans as well as grow their companies and impact the world. 
So, so, so how do you uh, ultimately, you know, decide on what to invest in? Like if I, I'm an entrepreneur of an idea and I be able to land a meeting with you, like, so what's your evaluation process look like? Yeah. I mean, it's insane. Like, so, so there's a lot of different variants and I think why this is, but since we launched in September, we've actually seen about 350 inbound. Wow. <laughs> and, and people will get shocked by that. So I'd say of the 350, we probably evaluated, I'd say 75 and we've, done seven deals since September. So it kind of gives you a, a breakdown of that funnel. So we treat the funnel no different than you would treat a product sales funnel, right? We look at it all the way at the top. We evaluate opportunities. It's, it's, a, it's a mutual fit thing too, right? It's not like, uh, you know, we decide or they decide. We have to decide together on whether or not we're backing certain startups or entrepreneurs. Part of the reason we have such an amazing funnel is, is a lot of the work we were doing at Dine was helping scale and grow startups. It happened to be through technology, but a lot of the way we would work together would be very consultative. Um, so that was one thing. The other thing is we've been angel investing for a long time. Joe Raska and I, uh, who's one of my partners in York IE, the other is Adam Coughlin. Joe was our uh, first head of FP&A at Dine. He was our, also our head of Corp Dev. Adam was our head of corporate comms at Dime, first and only, and then ran product comms inside Oracle. And when Joe and I, uh, we actually created the same vehicle we're using to invest in, the same qualified investment company we use today, we actually launched in 2016 next to the SaaS syndicate by York IE, which is our angelist syndicate that I actually co-founded with Gil Pancino, who's a super angel from the West Coast in 2014. And, and Gil's still involved, but he's now a minority partner, and I'm the majority partner of that. So when you anchor it on top of this SaaS syndicate that had done about 15 deals, deployed about 10 million into startups over four or five years, next to our angel portfolio, next to our Dine experience, we actually already had a huge bunch of inbound. The last thing that really solidified it was our roles inside Oracle. I GM the Dine business unit for about three years in Oracle. So I stayed after the acquisition. And Joe and I helped lead what we call the strategic development team in Oracle product under engineering. I reported to a guy named Don Johnson who reported to Larry Ellison. And we actually sat between corporate development and engineering and looked at every single inbound M&A opportunity for Oracle. So if you think about that, everyone who's looking to sell their B2B software business, whether you want to or not, you're flipping your company over to Oracle Corp Dev. Oracle Corp Dev will flip it over to engineering and product to say, hey, does this have any interest for you? And through that process, we evaluated billions and billions of dollars of M&A opportunities. We executed several M&A deals, several more strategic partnerships, and developed even a greater reputation with the investment bank and venture community because we sat on that side of the equation too. So Dine also had bought 11 companies along our rise. A lot of people don't realize that. We did hires all the way up to a $30 million acquisition. Um, so we were very thoughtful about um, strategic M&A opportunities for IP, for talent, for team, for market. Uh, and it was a big part of our story. So again, all those things together, you put them in the cauldron, it leads to that deal flow. And then we just run it like a sales you know, process pipeline. And you know, the team ends up bringing me deals. They bring me into deals when they believe it's a legitimate opportunity that we should really deeply explore. And it's hard, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, Joe, Adam and I as a partnership need to agree and needs to get through the, the process. I'm, I'm the ultimate, you know, vetoer or approver. Um, you know, the, the damn company's got my name on it. So, you know, I gotta, I gotta be ultimately accountable to, to the capital and to our syndicate. Um, and it's been good so far. So uh, we've got a great pipeline. I'd say in the, pipeline, which we're in our cohort too, which is the next six month window. Um, I, I think there's three or four real potential right now that we're in final decisions on whether we're going to do them or not. So it's, uh, it's been about an average of, uh, I'd say 350, 400 K checks mm -hmm. going into these companies, probably about 400 K and we're going to keep growing that syndicate. So I think our average is going to get North or more North to about a million dollars. And we're going to stay in the seed stage, B2B software, go to market, uh, heavy help, and, you know, we'll see, we'll see how we continue to execute. So how do you decide from the 350, you truly evaluated 35. So what were those, like, well, what's the lane of the 35 that, you know, someone should know if they're thinking about reaching out? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, predominantly, like I said, B2B software, so subscription business models, mm -hmm. uh, up and down the stack though. I mean, we're not just in infrastructure and in DevOps and cyber. We'll go all the way up to, you know, SaaS applications that are disrupting industries. We sort of start out, is this a company that we believe its team is uh, going to be able to disrupt the market? So the four areas are market, 
our um, product, our go-to-market or into our traction and team. And those four areas, every single time we look for a differentiated or outlier or disruptor uh, capabilities in each of those areas. And they're not all the same, right? I, I, you know, some are pre-revenue, some are 1.2 million ARR, some are multi-time founders, some are first-time founders, some are in markets that are owned and they can be disruptive, some are in new and emerging markets, right? Some have very mature and sophisticated products and deep science in their teams, some have an outsourced dev team. So I'd love to tell you it's like a perfect equation, yeah. but what we do is we score across those four criterias and we look for Kind of anomalous outlier behavior in any four of those categories. And typically when you know three or four are outlier and one solid, you know, that's a deal we're gonna do. If two or four are outlier and the and the other two are solid, we might still do that deal. And you know, it's really um it ends up in the end with all the data, all the metrics, uh, it ends up really in the end coming down to instinct, right? And and feel. And we've told ourselves if these are people that we would show up to the closing dinner when they have a great exit event, you know, and that we wait for that to be the final, final edict, right? Would we, would we fly to San Francisco or New York? Would we tell our wife and kids we, we can't be home that night, you know, it's to celebrate with the, this, these guys or gals as their, as their startup has success. And that ends up being a kind of push us in the pool uh, type of question we ask ourselves uh, all the time. So it's, it's, a, it's a really rigid process. The other thing is we've launched, even though we have no management fee, that means I'm, I'm basically seed funding our operating teams. And we're, we're doing consulting for startups and SaaS who need help, predominantly in portfolio, but we'll take on strategic engagements to cover our, our costs. And we're also building this product roadmap, which I'm happy to tell you more about. And, and by doing that, we're also eating our own dog food, building our own startup at the same time that we're advising other startups on how to do this. And I think this really sort of helps with that balance and that respect. We're not like retired guys from Dine doing an investment firm or retired MBAs from Harvard doing an investment firm. We're still in the school of hard knocks, uh, leaning in to build our own, our own SaaS business at the same time. So that helps too. Yeah, I did notice you had, you know, on your website, there's products and there's the SaaS product portfolio coming soon. So, so what are the details on that? Yeah, so one of the things that I think has differentiated me in my career and something that I've tried to mentor others and coach others to get really great at is uh, sort of being an encyclopedia of your market, your industry, yourself, your competitors, your comparators. Um, from the very beginning, when I went to Whipple Hill, we did private school software and every new technology that ever came out was integrated into that technology, into that platform. And when we went into these schools and sold these schools, we'd always tell them how to embrace the latest and greatest technology and trends to differentiate from other schools in their market. And it really got me thinking, and that's how we approach Dyne, is not only are we innovating ourselves, but how are we passing that innovation through following the trends of the market, knowing the customer of the market better than anybody in the room, and then implementing these innovations, right? I think that's, that's critical to any company or career success. And so I've always tried to be this encyclopedia. And one thing I've realized is I, I operate in this like really um, fast paced flow to my day. Like I can context switch from one thing to the next, um, multitask like crazy where most tech companies and B2B software companies are actually founded by engineers. Mm -hmm. And even the business folks that are founding a lot of these companies might be the finance quants or you know, the MBAs. And, and they just don't think the same way that a guy who ran sales teams and run marketing programs thinks, which is multi-campaign, multi, uh, multi-threaded. So, so we're basically creating a market uh, research competitive uh, intelligence platform to help sort of streamline what I believe is a, is a manual and laborious process of research of private companies. So think of it like a Bloomberg portal for private companies okay. um, focused on go-to-market trends, momentum, insight. So it's almost like a cross between what you see with PitchBook and Crunchbase, what they're doing for the startup landscape. It's predominantly around, you know, financings and fundings and team um, mixed with what the Gartners and the G2 crowds and the serious decisions and the foresters are doing on research in those industries and making it more of a kind of bottoms up smash up of kind of go to market proof points to help both BD strategy, corp dev entrepreneurs, 
also to help um, what we believe is, is equally as important to also help investors and co-investors and angel investors track portfolios, monitor spaces, mm. see success, and then help those two come together to communicate better. Because I don't know about you, but investors, um, are, especially in the angel world and the seed stage world, entrepreneurs are not nearly consistent enough with their investor updates and how the company's doing. Mm -hmm. And most of the things that really shape a company aren't just the CAC to LTV ratios and the internal metrics. It's a lot of market and how the company's doing uh, in their overall space and momentum and share of voice. Uh, so it's really about bringing all those things together. Um, we're, we're in the early stages of building this platform. We, we do plan on Interna alpha alphaing what we're doing into ourselves. We're our own first customer, right? We're we're using it to do diligence on all of our deals, to study markets, to do a strategic rationales, to do market mapping. Uh, so we're using it as our own first customer today, and we're going to bring it to the portfolio uh, probably mid-year, and we'll, we plan on launching it in the fall. So it's a lot of work to do, um, but we think it's going to really streamline these teams. And I wouldn't be surprised if it's actually used by the likes of oracles who are trying to educate themselves on private companies and private companies and markets. Um, so we're really, really excited about its potential. Got it. Okay. Now, obviously we talked a lot about, you know, scaling, growing companies. Um, so what advice do you give to founders around that in terms of building out their initial sales strategy? You know, they've kind of found that there is a market for what they're building. And then once they kind of hit that inflection point of, you know, some level of success to the next phase of actually scaling. It's funny. I, I actually, uh, I wrote blogs and did public speaking on this in 2012. And mm -hmm. I was reminded of it recently uh, by one of our portfolio companies who came across it on YouTube. On YouTube. It was at the Next Web Conference in Amsterdam. Mm -hmm. And it was uh, like, you know, how to hire your first sales person and not screw it up when you do. And, mm -hmm. and in it, there was 12 parts to building a modern, well-oiled go-to-market machine. And, and I look back on it recently and I was surprised at how much it held true because I feel like when I wrote it, I, I wrote it. Now there's a lot of playbooks and blogs and you know, courses and conferences on SaaS and B2B scaling. Back then there really wasn't, right? So a lot of what you were doing was you know, writing your own sort of plays. And that's something that I like to tell startups all the time is advice is great, but it's, it's in the lanes of the advice. Like there is no actual playbook that's, you know, you know, convertible from Dine or from Box or from HubSpot to your business. Each business is a snowflake and it is different, but many of the fundamentals are very much the same. So in that, I document, you know, you need executive buy-in, you need a, a leader. I talk a lot about ultimate accountability between sales and marketing interplaying together. If it's sales versus marketing, you'll never see success. Uh, I talk about quota models. I talk about comp plans. Uh, so all these different things, I think, picking focus verticals, case studies, reference accounts, uh, all those types of things I think are important to nail before you go pour the engine on paid, you know, events or paid media is mm -hmm. nailing sort of those foundational, like what are the anchors and the pillars of, of my company and where, where I can build upon and make repeatable. Uh, and so that's a lot of the early focus that I don't think enough, again, obsessive focus is placed on, uh, nailing that messaging hierarchy, nailing that strategy, nailing the early execution, focused execution, and then figuring out the ways in which you can pour uh, investment on fuel on the fire to scale those individualized things. The other thing that I, I hear a lot, I sit on a lot of boards, and it's a, it's a real challenge for startups to get beyond that sort of uh, you know, MVP, product market fit stage to that repeatability because I think there's a tendency for, especially in funded companies, for boards to sort of say, focus, 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 focus. And sometimes you know, these companies end up overly focusing on these internal metrics and avoid the, you know, kind of ignore the market and don't make the bets that they need to make. Mm -hmm. So I call this kind of the 80-20 rule. I think it's important that 80% of effort, your resources, talent are focused on the core operating model and managing the P&L and running the business. But you still need to reserve 20% of time, budgets, leadership towards the bets. Like what are the knobs and levers you're going to take in this next fiscal year to beat, I call it like break the model for the better, right? Like to beat the model, right? So these could be things like pricing changes or new markets or new products or international expansion or uh, comp cha plan changes or demand gen programs that you hadn't tried before that, that are additive 
to the baseline model. They're not going to break the business because the whole beauty of SaaS, right? It's, it's land, expand, retain, rinse and repeat. Right. And yep. I think the thing is, is, is if you do that methodically, as we discussed earlier, like anything, you're going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. But as you grow, even if you keep your churn rates the same on a percentage basis, that's more overall net churn that you need to backfill. So are you going to do that by doing the same tricks or are you going to find new levers and knobs to expose to that success? And so I think that's just a fundamental thing companies need to do. I'm, I'm on boards of 30 million ARR companies and there's still this internal fight with really with a hundred million into them. And there's still this squabble over focus, focus, focus. And I'm always the one in the room trying to say, Hey, it's not shiny objects, but what are the bets that, you know, help hedge against that operating model, but also could potentially be massive upside for you. So, so you're involved in a lot. I mean, you're, you've got a lot going on. So how do you manage your time? Yeah. So like I said, um, I operate in this flow based work style, right? And I've been fortunate. Uh, you've met Ashley, uh, my assistant, who's actually been with me since 2010 or 11. So, you know, she worked for me at Dyn, then at Oracle, came over with me with York IE. I also work with core people I trust that I've worked with for a very long time. Adam and Joe, my two uh, co-founders, were actually childhood friends. Adam and I met in kindergarten, and then he was my high school quarterback, believe it or not. And then we met Joe on the Little League baseball field. Wow. So we all grew up together, went our separate ways. Joe went to Providence. Adam went to Richmond. I went to Bentley. We all kind of lived and worked in different parts of the world. And they actually started working at Dime. Yes, they got the in as my friend, but they earned it and really grew their careers there alongside of me. And by the time we were inside Oracle, what you realize in these massive companies is regardless of role, level, title, reporting, you need your people. I think that's true for startups. It's especially true in the kind of bureaucratic political landscape of an Oracle. It's just a massive place. Um, and we really even got tighter and tighter through that three-year run at Oracle. So I think it's, it's, it's flow-based for me. I'm kind of always on, can touch and context switch and be a part of a lot of things. It's having great infrastructure support and administrative support with Ashley, my assistant, who is our director of business administration for York IE, and then working with a team of complementary parts. I mean, Joe's more of a finance guy. I was more of a brand marketing guy. I'm more of kind of business BD sales guy. And, mm -hmm. and having those complementary parts really helps. The other thing I'd say is working on your passion and the things that you that is part of that long game vision you have for yourself and for your peer group. Um, and that sort of rising tides approach is critical. I mean, one thing we didn't even talk about today, which I wish we talked about more of, is York Athletics. I mean, we we actually third generation co-founded the family business and are are actually making shoes again. And the reason I bring that up is the CEO of that company, I'm on the board and I'm a co-founder, came from Puma. I mean, he is an expert in shoes, right? So we back and work with experts in their proven domain. And then we build complementary teams around each of these ventures to ensure that these creative entrepreneurs are supported. So all the brands and the marketing oriented stuff all sit under your creative collective. So it's also structurally different where those things get a lot of love. My brother's hundred plus person marketing agencies and then the tech investment portfolio under York IE and, and the historical angel portfolio now has my eight-person team, which is a larger team than most seed stage VC funds, right? We've, we've launched with a bigger team because we have a bigger vision and we have a diversified and hybrid vision. So I think all of those things really help, help me you know, have my fingers in lots of things, but also not be distracted and, and keep my eye on the prize, which is taking this, this investment enterprise and, and growing the whole entire pie, not just each individual slice. Now, is it like, can people still join your syndicate? Is that still? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a great question. So, so there's two areas of joining, and they're very different engagement models. Um, on AngelList, we actually have two syndicates. We have the York IE Scout Syndicate, which is earlier stage deals. They're probably going to be more hyper-local to the Boston area. Um, we're pretty biased there, and we, we use that for light checks where they're just a little bit of help in getting in the door. Think like 100, 150K checks. That has about 200 backers. And we then have the York IE SaaS Syndicate that has about 1,000 backers globally. And we're doing SaaS deals all over the world. We've done 1.8 million through that syndicate. We've, are, we've done down to 100K in that syndicate. We use that a lot. 
as a top off to what we have as our captive syndicate. So both those syndicates, if you're on AngelList, you can go on AngelList today for as, as long as you're an accredited investor for as little as $1,000 per deal, you can pledge to back deals and you can back the deals that you like. And there's lots of great Boston area backers of that deal from Mike Volpe to Tom Wentworth, uh, many characters that are very close familiarity with venture fits. Um, on, the, on the captive syndicate, what we created was a very similar, um, uh, we call it a, a captive syndicate because it's, it's a qualified investment company that we created. It's the same vehicle that Joe and myself have been using since the Oracle acquisition. And we've added a bunch of high net worth individuals. So if you're a high net worth individual, uh, they typically fall into two categories today. We've got about 15 members of that one. That's a much smaller captive group. They're either high net worth individuals looking to diversify to this asset class, an alternative investment asset class that's different management fee list than traditional VC funds, mm -hmm. um, or they're entrepreneurs. So we have uh, many tech founders from the Boston area who are entrepreneurs who are running their companies or running their new companies and just don't have time and want to use this as a vehicle, but also want advisory seats and get better deal access. So folks pledge to that one. They pledge an annual amount, a five-year term, uh, and they're part of that syndicate. And they're an investment partner and advisor for York IE. So those are two, two ways. The second one is incredibly selective. The first one, we have a, a light betting process, but it's, it's meant to be a little bit more democratizing angel investing. So, and we have several other vehicles that we're going to create over time. And again, try to just continue to reinvent venture capital, and more importantly, invent, reinvent how we think what gets celebrated with startups, how they're built, scaled, and monetized, we believe needs to change. It can't be all the vanity. I'd much rather a company gets the 30 million and never fundraises ever a dollar and owns their own company than one who raises 100 million to get the 30 million ARR. So, you know, the balance has got to rebalance and we need to see more thoughtful, effective, effective, efficient scaling of these startups, especially in B2B SaaS. It's the whole point. And, and we believe that the market is incredibly lost its way and gone the other direction. And we hope to play a little bit of a role in pulling it back. Now, and on top of all this, you, you're also involved in a lot of charitable organizations too, right? Oh yeah. So, you know, I think a big part of Dine Ethos, even before I got there, but also a big part of my family upbringing was always to give back to the community. So you know, we do a lot um, as York IE and individually to support, you know, the, the kind of entrepreneurial landscapes, um, we do a lot for kids and arts and athletics. Um, you know, we, we co-founded the Rock On Foundation with uh, the Bonner brothers, which Matt Bonner uh, played 11 years for the San Antonio Spurs uh, from New Hampshire. Uh, do that with a bunch of athletes. But across all of our ventures, you know, we're deeply involved in, in the charitable efforts that fit those ventures, right? Because it's different for York Athletics from Company 39, which is another one of our investments, to, uh, you know, Iron and Air, which is another one of our investments, to Jobble in Boston or to Cyberhaven in Boston, who are tech startups, right? So, but we definitely um, lean in heavy on supporting the community. Uh, we do lots of Special Olympics, Boys and Girls Club. So again, part it's it's funny when you have your own company, you know, and you, you sort of have to create, okay, what's personal versus what's the company? And you find that these things blend together and you find real value in, in merging them and, and operating in these stages of gray, which I think is what makes this rising tides, this enterprise kind of evolution work is when you kind of blurry the lines on all of it, you know, and so it's been really fun. We focus a lot on boards, stay, work, play, New Hampshire, the New Hampshire Tech Alliance. Uh, and, you know, it, it, as I mentioned earlier, when you play the long game, uh, you mentioned running the Segway. I mean, Dean Kamen, one of the inventors of the Segway from Manchester, has been here since the 80s. Mm -hmm. And now he's got this whole new regenerative medicine, you know, uh, industry getting created here. We kind of view the same way. My main goal is for people to think of Southern New Hampshire and Manchester as, as, as the radius of the greater Boston ecosystem. I mean, York IE has an office on Summer Street, 93 Summer Street. You know, we're down there, you know, one, two times a week meeting with startups. We also happen to have our headquarters in our hometown. But if we can stop being so parochial and tie all these things together, then the community only gets better. And, you know, both from the entrepreneurial side, but also from the philanthropy side. So it's an exciting time. And I think there's a lot of others, including ourselves, who are really committed to this. Um, and I appreciate you having us because I think things like this, getting the word out, shining a light on, on your hometown, right? Um, yeah, I love it. Letting people know that there's a lot of good action and a lot of, you know, passionate and ambitious people uh, trying to make a dent. So outside of, uh, outside of the, your professional world, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? 
Oh, so I'm uh, not surprising. I'm, I'm like a family guy, right? I've got three kids, Henry, Teddy, and Evie, seven, four, and two. So mm-hmm. in the throes, I mean, this entire time building and scaling Dine and then selling to Oracle, then working for Oracle and having to be on too many planes and going to Redwood Shores. Mm-hmm. My wife, Katie, and I, you know, have held firm. I mean, she knew nothing other, right? She met me senior year of college. So that's the Kyle she knew. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, focused family time, right? I think there's a, there is a balance. And I think building a dime to 100 million ARR into the exit we had to Oracle and then working at Oracle, holding it all together for a long time was a lot of pressure. So yeah. I've been really uh, focused aggressively on my kids and my, and my family. And, and I have four siblings and a bunch of nieces and nephews and my mm-hmm. folks and Katie's folks. So a lot of my focus goes there. Uh, we just spent the weekend skiing at Sunapee. And we spent the summers up at Sunapee. Uh, so, you know, that's really a focus and I'm obsessive into sports, right? So, you know, the Pats are out, but I actually think it's good. They're going to get a little rested up. They're going to sign Brady to two or three years uh, and we're going to make another run of it next year. So, you know, that's the stuff I love is the family time. You know, I love sports. I love community. Uh, those are things that really, that really excite me. Cool. Well, Kyle, thanks so much for taking the time to share all your, your stories with our audience and obviously all the great advice. The last thing I want to add is if you're up in Manchester, the old Indian Head Athletics is now a sports bar and grill. We turned the old sports store into a sports bar called Shoppers Pub and Eatery at Indian Head. And it's right across from the SNHU arena. So I want people to give that a whirl when they're up here. And we we are always there. So ask if I am there because we're always hanging. It's kind of where we do office hours and team outings. And we, we built the neighborhood sports bar and grill. And it was actually the other ones in Waltham, Mass, right on Moody Street, for those who know that one. So it was a college buddy of mine who, uh, who opened it up, and we're really excited about it. So, so back to the community thing, I think, uh, for you, if you haven't been up for it, I'd love to buy you a lunch next time you're up. Absolutely. Next, I, I need an excuse to go to Manchester. My, my sister still lives in Goffstown, so it's, oh, uh, I can Excellent. probably it all together. <laughs> awesome. Excellent. All right. All right take really care. Appreciate it. Take care. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.